0: them on our shoulders every time we go outside. Women who don't wear hijab are shamed, blamed, and guilted. Women who don't wear hijab in a particular way are told to take it off. We have so much expectation on how women should dress and we dictate that, but we don't give any type of support and mentorship and creating spaces where women could feel like they even want to explore what that looks like. Honestly, one of the most beautiful parts of Islam being true is the fact that despite the toxicity and trauma women have faced, they're still Muslim. Allahu Akbar, if that doesn't show the strength of the faith of Muslim women, because despite all of this, we're still clinging onto our faith. And I wanna clarify, obviously this is not all masajid. This is not all Muslim spaces. There are so many Muslim organizations and messages that are actively creating women's spaces. At the same time, I hear from women, hundreds of women. And this is not the norm for many, many, many communities.
1: If I had asked you to name three female companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, on the spot, would you be able to? You're listening to Unsween and Unfiltered, the podcast, episode 10 of season 2. This is a question that I had struggled coming up with an answer for before this discussion. Yet, ironically, there isn't a shortage of female companions from our Prophet's time, nor a shortage in female scholars in today's society. But why is it that I am struggling with naming these powerful and admirable women? In today's episode, I sit down with the Stada Miriam Amir, an illuminating light in our Muslim community. And not only does she hold a master's degree in education, a bachelor's degree in Islamic studies, among some of her countless accomplishments, but she also holds a second degree black belt in Taekwondo. Now how cool is that? And if I may add, this conversation is just as powerful as her jumping reverse right kick and left hook. (laughs) For a while, ever since I was younger and attending lectures in my masjid, I have been fixated on the role of Muslim women in our society, specifically within our own Islamic spaces. I would have an internal dialogue with myself asking questions such as, is there room for me in this space? Am I overstepping my boundaries within my masjid? Am I being tolerated rather than welcomed? and so many other countless questions. I do want to mention that this conversation is not meant to place a blanket statement on all masjids. There are community spaces out there that are mashallah doing their part and going above and beyond to make women feel welcomed. Subhanallah, I can't help but to also revel in the fact that Muslim women are participating and excelling in every sector in today's society, despite the barriers they may be facing. We are a force to be reckoned with, and that even though we have suffered from discrimination, misogyny, and other forms of trauma, we still continue to be steadfast in our faith. And Sister Miriam Amir beautifully elaborates further on this statement in this discussion. I am continuously left in awe and empowered at the same time when hearing Sister Miriam speak in social spaces. She is someone who has personally taught me so much, and in today's episode, she touches upon a woman's access in Islamic spaces, how unfortunately at times it can be restricted due to the fear of fitna, how some policies that are created within our community spaces can truly be harmful. And she also touches upon the roles of women in our Prophet's time, peace be upon him, the warrior women who are in battle something I truly never even knew myself. This conversation sheds light on how society needs to make women feel welcomed rather than tolerated in whatever space they find themselves in. Like Sister Midian mentions, our faith didn't come about to mute our personalities. Rather, it was meant to enhance each and every one of us. I personally listened to this episode more times than I can count before releasing it. Some parts I wish I could add to my alarm clock so that when I wake up, I can truly feel empowered to take on the day as an unapologetic Muslim woman. As always, I am fortunate enough to be in the presence of these incredible teachers such as Estella Miriam. Please make sure to share this episode with a resilient woman in your circles. Let's dive in. <laughs> Thank you so much, Astrid and Miriam, for joining me today. I can't help but express how much I admire you and, mashallah, the work that you've contributed to our community in regards to exploring the many layers of our faith as well as the rights of Muslim women in Islam. And I think this is super important for us to talk about. And this is something that we will cover today. But I would love for you to briefly introduce yourself and then we can get right into it, inshallah.
0: I'm so honored and grateful and excited to be here. My name is Mary Amir. I focus on it's addressing issues that come from the Muslim community with regards to women, identity, spiritual crises, and taboo topics. I studied Islam for the past 15 years, alhamdulillah. I've had the honor and privilege of memorizing the Quran and working with scholars around the world, being mentored by them, and I'm so grateful for their guidance. And Alhamdulillah, I have a degree through Al-Azhar University, and I've studied in Egypt, alhamdulillah. My Educational background is in education. I have a master's from UCLA in social justice education. My thesis was on critical race theory. And merging those two, I think, is really important because it allows us to look at our identities critically and all of the ways that challenge what our identities are as Muslims and then find ways to then feel a sense of empowerment and love and and upliftment in who we are because of our connection to God, because we revel and just feel excited about who we are as individuals. I
1: know I'm not alone when I say this, but you're truly a role model for a lot of Muslim women When I listen to your content online, the content that you share, and even when you recite the Qur'an, mashallah, your voice, it just brings chills down my spine because of how beautiful it is. But it's also because it's like, yes, this might be the first time I've heard a female recite the Qur'an, unfortunately. But I'm glad that you're making waves. I'm glad that you're teaching us how to empower ourselves and how to empower the women around us. You brought up a lot of great points in regards to just, again, like the content that you share. And one of them being women in Muslim spaces, in community spaces, in our massages. And sometimes it's like, I enter these spaces and I don't know what my role is or how I can contribute. And, you know, sometimes you do feel more so tolerated than welcomed. For me, my personal masjid, I've grown up there since I was little. It's been the message that I've known all my life and I've seen so many changes and I'm just proud of the masjid that I have in my community. I'm fortunate enough to have this masjid that's very diverse, but other people do not have that, you know, that same space within their community to practice Islam and to feel uplifted and empowered as a woman. I do want to discuss how did we deviate from from our prophet's example of how he helped Held women in society, not only did he showcase Women who they were mothers, but they were also Women that were in battle that you once even Spoke of, and I was like, wow, that's that's incredible I never even heard of these stories before I also want to talk about how you said, look, our worth Doesn't only, you know, line these three Spaces, which is modesty, which is such A big deal these days, we'll talk about that in a bit Marriage, also another thing And like I said, motherhood, how can we As women see ourselves in other spaces Outside of that, especially when our prophet peace be upon him, showcased that and reflected that
0: When we look at the community of the Prophet Muhammad, we see see that women were acknowledged for their very specific interests, contributions. They were encouraged to become the best version of themselves because Islam didn't come to mute our personalities. It came to enhance the personality that Allah blessed us with. One of the things that I really struggled with when I got really excited about studying Islam for the first time, was that I was told my personality in and of itself was haram, that I as an individual was problematic. And that's because I'm naturally louder. I'm naturally more talkative. I was giving lectures and and, in student government. And it was like all of this was not religiously acceptable. What I needed to be was someone who only stayed home. And that was my place. And that's beautiful. That is an absolutely valid, acceptable, beautiful opinion for anyone who wants to take that opinion. The problem is that in our communities, we often translate that into policy and make it seem like this is the only form of worship. And when we do that, A, we lose so many women who simply can't, who can't understand why this could be a, like a religiously their role. And B, we're not reflective of the community of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. When we look at the masjid of the Prophet, وسلم, there are literally hundreds of narrations of companions who were women who would actively participate in going to the masjid, praying in the masjid, listening to lectures in the masjid. There are so many narrations of women narrating what they saw of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, asking the Prophet وسلم, a question. And women asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, for a specific day where they could ask questions of the Prophet. When I first heard that, my reaction was, why only one day? Like, why did they only have one day where they could ask questions? Like, why didn't they ask for more? And then I learned that it wasn't because they didn't have more. It was because they were always present. They always had access. But there were also men present having access too. And so they asked for a special time where they could ask their more intimate questions that they didn't want. their their male counterparts to hear. Just that shift in the narrative, just that slight nuance shifted everything for me. Because when I first got into Islam, I came across all of these hadiths and these ayats that challenged my faith. And I'm here like memorizing the Quran and I take this class because I want to defend Islam in college. And it was just so hard for me because hearing about women's issues caused me to feel like does this mean that Islam isn't empowering for women? Does this mean that our voices don't matter? And it was a very, very painful process for me to come to the realization that the way that we are as a community right now has been impacted politically. We have been impacted by so much that has shaped our understanding of Muslims, Muslim women's spaces that are not in and of itself scholarly opinion, but rather Realistically, just based in changes in the world, you know, many of us are the great grandchildren, the great, great grandchildren of a generation that went through colonialism. We are not that far away from generations that had to deal with complete oppression, suppression of their faith. And with that came a shift in how women's access was viewed and received. So like we need to look at our reality from that lens when we think for example women reciting the quran that's so strange like like you mentioned i might have been the first woman you've ever heard recite like why is that the case here but when we look in other places like when we look at algeria when we look at malaysia indonesia this is their norm women reciting the quran is their norm so what is it about our understanding and the people who built the masajid here That is different from countries that have created this as part of their space. And a sheikh that I spoke to, one of my mentors, may Allah bless him, he made a really profound point. And that is that sometimes in our fear of what could happen, we close doors for women's access. When in reality, what we should be doing is normalizing it so that we're not afraid of the fitna. And that's really like this point. When we look at the message of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, we have women who were involved in staying at home all the time. And we have women who were out, like Sheetha bin Tabdullah, who was um, the al-ma'adhu um, who made her the minister of the market. Like we have women who were fighting in battle. And then we have women who were staying at home with kids. We have hundreds of narrations of women who took care of the wounded and who went with these armies so that they could take care and nurse and give water to the to the men on the battlefield and then we have women who fought in the battle like we have women in all these different roles why can't we be a reflection of that instead of teaching sisters that this is the only opinion that's the truth that's the haqq of the quran and sunnah why aren't we a reflection of what the prophet muhammad peace be upon him, his community of women actually was I I love
1: that. You've clarified so much for me, because sometimes it's like us women, and I do want to talk about this, like, and it's not just solely based in our faith or our community. Like you said, it's all about colonialism. Like I see this across all communities, across all different faiths in this country, at least in the West, where majority of women feel more so like a liability than an asset. They feel like more so like a burden. And I want to know how, at least in our specific community, how can we create these roles? Who do we talk to? How do we make space for ourselves? I mean, are we going to just sit back and continue to, wait until finally we do become a reflection of the Prophet, peace be upon him, how he used to handle things. What can we do in regards to allowing ourselves to be seen and heard in these spaces? And like I said, not just seen, but specifically heard in these spaces, because a lot of times I do feel like, you know, we're either silenced or our voices are cut off or we're not not even taken seriously at times. Sometimes it almost seems like Islam only seems correct and factual when it comes from the male perspective versus like the female perspective. Like sometimes we're almost like negated, even though there, there are people, like you who have done extensive studies on this, who have gone to school for this, who have gotten degrees in in, in regards to stuff like this. So it's like, why do we still continue to feel like negated or in a way silenced almost? So how can we find ourselves in these spaces and actually be
0: leaders in these spaces? There are three approaches that we need to start taking. And this is obviously just my personal thoughts. There are so many women who are scholars who are so much more knowledgeable than I am and Mashallah is so accessible. We have Dr. Tamara Gray, Dr. haifa Yunus, Dr. Aisha Wazwaz, well, Sheikha Aisha Prime. We have Sheikha zainab Bansari. So many women who are actively involved in creating these types of spaces. So if we live in a community where we don't see that reflection, it doesn't mean that it's not in existence. It means that we work towards it. And those are just like a handful of names of so many women who I've been so fortunate to now be in contact with and be inspired by. But if we look at our, you know, kind of like this three-step process that we can start creating this change. One, it starts with us as individuals. When we look at why we're challenged by our faith as an individual, if I come across something that challenges my faith, if I come across something that I feel like I don't, Know how to process this from a religious perspective. I don't know what that means in my relationship to God. Then I need to first recognize that education starts with my own journey. And I need to be responsible for that. There are so many times where we do seek knowledge and we are pushed out, we are pushed away. And at times that could close the door for us and we don't want to keep going. And that was my personal experience for many years. So I understand that reality. At the same time, We just have to keep pushing until we feel like we can start understanding our religion on our own with the support of scholars. But how can I understand it in a way that reflects my relationship with God based in the Quran and the Sunnah, but one in which I find healing from? Because there are going to be people of knowledge who make us feel like we don't belong, like we're belittled. I'm very fortunate that most of my teachers have been men. They have created spaces for me. They've helped me find my voice and uplifted my voice and amplified my voice and they continue to do so. But at the same time, that hasn't been my reality all the time or everyone's. So if you are not finding spaces to learn where you can feel like the Islam that I'm practicing is is an Islam that I feel is, you know, healing for me, then take courses with incredible scholars who have already created institutes. And I'm going to share a few with you just so you have resources. Imam Suhaib Webb was my first mentor and he has web.com. We have Dr. Tamara Gray's Rubble Talk. Dr. Aisha Wazwaz has Gems of Light. We have uh, so many of these different scholars who have their own institutes that you can study with and find that type of lens of the family through. So that's the first point. The second one, is we need to look at the difference between our personal preferences and community policies. We have individuals who are on masjid boards who are creating policies in the architecture and the infrastructure of masjid. When you enter a masjid and you grow up in a masjid where you don't see women ever giving lectures, where you don't even know what the imam looks like and you don't know who to ask your questions to, when it's 3 a.m., And you have no idea if you finished your period and you need to pray Fajr and you have no clue who to ask because you have never had access to someone to ask those types of questions to. These are a reflection of the fact that we are not prioritizing in many Muslim communities, women's access to knowledge. And when we don't make that in the architecture and the infrastructure of our masjid a priority, we then also give the message that women do not matter in religious spaces as much as men do. And that is not the reflection of the community of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in which women constantly ask their questions. In which in Sahih al-Bukhari, one of the wives of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in istihadah, would actually pray in the Masjid of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa And istihadah, for those who might not know that term, is when you're in a state of bleeding that is not ritually impacting your worship. So why would she go to the masjid and have a tray underneath her in Sahih al-Bukhari unless she felt like being in the masjid was a space for her to worship Allah and feel that type of connection. So when we make policy based on one opinion, the opinion that, It's better for women to be able to go to the mall, to go to the market, to go to the movies, to go everywhere. But if they try to enter the masjid, I have heard stories of women who tell me that they've tried to go to the masjid to pray because they're out and they need to pray. And instead, they've either had to pray on the sidewalk outside of an empty, open masjid or have been told to go to the mall down the street because they have a multi-state center in that mall instead of simply opening the door to a completely empty masjid. If those are the types of policies we're setting, and then at the exact same time, we expect women to carry all of Islam on our shoulders every time we go outside. Women who don't wear hijab are shamed, blamed, guilted. Women who don't wear hijab in a particular way are told to take it off. We have so much expectation on how women should dress and we dictate that, but we don't give any type of support and mentorship and creating spaces where women could feel like they even want to explore what that looks like. How can we as a community put any blame on women? Honestly, one of the most beautiful parts of Islam being true is the fact that despite the toxicity and trauma women have faced in Muslim spaces, they're still Muslim. Like. Allahu Akbar. If that doesn't show the strength of the faith of Muslim women, because despite all of this, we're still clinging on to our faith. And I want to clarify, obviously, this is not all misajid. This is not all Muslim spaces. This is not all Muslim organizations. There are so many Muslim organizations and messages that are actively creating women's spaces actively. At the same time, I hear from women, hundreds of women, and this is not the norm for many, many, many communities. And so, If we are not going to change policies to no longer reflect one version, one opinion, these are opinions based in scholarship. I'm not denying that they exist. And maybe that scholarship works best for a particular community. A sister reached out to me from another country and she was like, why are you pushing for women to go to the masjid? Why don't they just go to the madrasa? And I was like, we don't have that. That's not our... In the United States, our masjid is where we learn. It's where we worship. It's where we find community. Yes, we have third spaces being created by people who are tired of the masjid's policies and politics, but that's, we don't have these like third spaces that women actively need in. We're not in a, that's not our infrastructure as a general nation. So unless we create those alternative spaces and that's part of our norm, the masjid is the place where we find our religion. And without it, Without being able to access it and feel like it's not someone else's home. It's our home in this relationship with Allah. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's house and the house of Allah is for all of us. Until we feel that is reflected in the way that we create our masajid, we are going to continue to see women leave and not come back. They don't want to raise, if they choose to have children or if they do have children, they're not going to want to raise their kids in that. And so who are we to blame when three or four or five generations into the future, God forbid, and protect us, we don't have people coming to the masjid? Like, who is to blame at that point? And I understand why Nasajid create these policies. A lot of times, it's for this concept of said of the ra'iya. It is blocking the means. It's preventing the means of fitnah there's this fear that if we open the doors men and women are going to freely mingle and somehow some fitna is going to occur the problem with that is that number one the prophet muhammad peace be upon him first of all said do not prevent female servants of god from entering the houses of god from going to the houses of god and i have a whole lecture on the you know benefits of women going to the masjid so i'm not going to go into that it's on youtube and instagram tv we have differences of opinion not just one opinion that a woman's prayer is better in the masjid versus her home. And when we only teach that woman's prayer is better in her home based on one understanding of one context, then we have policies that reflect that in masajid because it's better for women to pray at home anyway. So why do we need to create these beautiful spaces for women versus having masajid that reflect the community of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in which women were actively a part of the masjid in which when there is a narration from Ibn Abbas, who there, there were a group of young men who would enter the masjid, this is the companions, this is an authentic narration, they would pray in the back lines of the men to get a glimpse of a beautiful woman who stood in the front lines of the woman. These are companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And the Prophet Wasallam did not build a wall between them, He didn't tell the woman not to come to the masjid. He didn't tell women that it would be better for them not to come to the masjid at all. He didn't create policies to close the doors for women's access because of the actions of men. The point is that in our community, what would our reaction have been to that? Like, not the prophetic reaction of, oh, we have a, a disease of our heart, perhaps coming to the masjid and Helping us learn and purify is the right solution rather than closing the doors of the masjid so that people don't learn, don't grow, and don't feel like they can come back. And in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, a beautiful woman approached him to ask a question during Hajj. And he was riding with his cousin and uh, Al-Fadl looked at Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Al-Fadl looked at this beautiful woman and was kind of like, just like staring at her. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam did not tell her to go find her uncle or dad or brother and come back and ask a question and in fact she was asking a question about her father her face was showing he didn't even i love naqab naqab is beautiful all respect to all sisters who are naqab this is not about you know shade on any anyone who wears naqab but the point is he didn't tell her sallallahu alayhi tell them to cover her face he didn't tell her that she is responsible for his gaze through words or action he gently turned his face away and he put personal responsibility وسلم, upon al-fadl to be the one to show respect to this woman who's asking a question and create a safe space for her question. That is the type of policy that we need to start looking at, at in Masajid because when we look at said al and closing the doors of fitna, the greater fitna that we have right now, than men coming to the masjid and potentially seeing a woman that is beautiful and that they are somehow, they can't concentrate on their prayer through is that women are leaving Islam, women are leaving Muslim spaces, and they're not coming back to them. And until that fitna is a greater fitna for us as a community that we are addressing, we are not going to continue to see women feeling like they're thriving in their religion and creating spaces for the next generation to feel that empowerment as well.
1: That was so heartbreaking to hear. But everything you said was true. I mean, these are realities. We sometimes tend to turn a blind eye because we don't want to deal with it. Or it's difficult. It's difficult to realize there are are a lot of women leaving Masajid. But sometimes not only are they leaving the Masajid, at times, yeah, they could be leaving our faith. These women are going to one day have their own beautiful families, inshallah. And it's like, how are we going to raise these children if even their own mothers are not active in the Masajid? They're not going to be active in the Masajid. Not only are we going to lose our faith, we're going to lose our language, our culture, everything. We start to lose it one by one. And the one thing that I always get fearful of is when they say like, you know, our faith is going to be a stranger to us. The Quran is going to be like a stranger to us. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's something that I honestly tend to fear. And I feel like I see that nowadays. I see it in these discussions. I see how sometimes how far removed people are from their faith because of their experiences, because of what they've experienced. Um, And I never want to negate anybody's experience, but they've gone through traumatic situations in regards to our community and how sometimes they felt shunned or put down by the way they look, especially when it comes to our physical appearance which we'll get into. But a lot of times I do feel this in all aspects of our lives. It seems like us women get the brunt of and the repercussions of what the men have done. And not all men. This is not to bash men at all. There's a lot of great men out there. But I just want to highlight that sometimes it's just the community as a whole. Sometimes we look towards the women to reprimand her for the actions of men. I wonder if there's a direct connection with how we were raised as well. Um, I've discussed this so many times on our podcast. I feel at times like us women, we're kind of like almost viewed as children for majority of our lives, even into adulthood, even being a 30 year old woman. It's like you're viewed as a child until you are married. And it's almost like who you are is tied to your relationship status. And sometimes you feel like the community kind of doesn't look at you as a whole woman until you're actually married, until you actually have a family. So sometimes that can be really difficult. And at times it's like, yeah, you do feel like your voices are heard because you are treated like a child. And I I feel like, yeah, that comes from our homes. Like, how are we empowering our daughters and educating our sons on the flip side as well to be able to handle these situations and change these policies and for us to become the board members of these misajid? So I I was wondering what your thoughts are, are on that in regards to just like how we're raised relates to what we're going through in these
0: community spaces and how women feel negated. I think this actually goes to an intersectionality between culture and religion. Uh, I've heard a lot from particular, some specific cultural demographics where this is a, a very prominent feeling. When you mentioned, you know, losing our cultures and our languages, I think that that also goes back to this idea of, you know, what it means to be an immigrant Muslim versus what it means to be Muslims from different ethnic backgrounds or different cultural backgrounds. Um, what it means to be an indigenous Muslim, what it means to be a black American Muslim. So much of that is meshed into policies. Again, this, this idea that, you know, women are seen as not a whole individual until they, you know, basically like they live at home, they deal with so many women approach me with abuse that they experience at home, physical abuse, emotional abuse that they experience at home. They are adults from their parents, these women in their 20s and their 30s, and they they can't move out because in whatever culture they come from, it's seen as immodest. It's seen as inappropriate. That's not a religious standard. That's a cultural issue. Women are absolutely, it's absolutely permissible for women to live on their own. So you have this like cultural understanding that, you know, in obedience to parents, which is unfortunately completely abused in our religious conversations, that they have to experience abuse for so long. And then they can't travel, they can't work the way that they want to, they have all these restrictions, they still have a curfew, even though they're 37. And then they can't, you know, move out until they're married and have their own family, which realistically, we have a marriage crisis right now. And people are getting married just to escape their parents. And that's a terrible reason to get married. So like we have all of these problems. And again, really, this is like very specific cultures that I've noticed have, have these conversations. This, I don't think this is, I don't think this is a reflection of every Muslim's cultural upbringing. But if we have masajid that are very often created by immigrant Muslims who come from these particular cultural backgrounds, those, you know, views are going to be embedded in the way that they raise their children, the way that they set up the masjid. And so a woman going to the masjid and only seeing this thinks that this is the norm in Islam. When in reality, when we look at the companions of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa for example, we have Asma bint Umayth, who in Sahih al-Bukhari, she was a woman who did the hijrah twice. She moved to Abyssinia and then she moved to Medina many years later. And she was with Hafsa, the daughter of al-Anhuma, and Omar enters and he's like trying to figure out who Asma is and then when he realizes that he was like oh she's the one who came on on the ship like she's the one who came like all this all this time later and he tells her we were with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam before you that they migrated to medina before she did therefore we have more of a right to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam than you do when a person of Omar's status he's a person of paradise he's a person who is uh, known to be intense and at the same time he has a very soft heart but like we see if if a male in an Islamically righteous position in leadership said something like this, how many of us, because of the way, you know, many Muslim women have been raised culturally or seen in their message,ed they would simply say, okay, even if internally, I'm struggling with that message, I don't have the vocabulary to respond. I hear a lot about this, like, women having specific responsibilities, daughters and their sons not having those responsibilities. Like those are specific cultures. That's not religion and it's not all Muslim culture. But like when we see, you know, Asma's reaction, her reaction was so intense. She responded to Amr radiallahu anhu and she was like, you are with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he like taught you, he fed you, he was with you and we were so far away and I'm going to go to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and I'm going to tell him what you said. I'm going to tell it like it is. And when she went to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The Prophet, peace be upon him, his reaction was that Umar and his companions do not have more of a right to me than you do. And he told her that they have the reward of one migration and she and her companions have the reward of migrating twice. And Abu Musa al-Ashari, who's like a great companion amongst the companions, he came to her and asked her about this. And then he and the companions who were with him, they cons- they just came back wanting to hear this over and over and over. And so, like, when we see how she used her agency of voice in the midst of someone who, you know, is a figure of power in the Muslim community. revelation was revealed because of Omar, like, he's a he's a very incredibly, you know, powerful and righteous and a person of paradise. I definitely would have been like, I am so sorry. I'm going to walk away. But like, no, her reaction was like, I have a right to be here. I have a space, I have, and I'm going to go to the authority figure, who, what did he do, Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? he changed policy. How did he change policy? By that statement. Because now, how did the companions react to the people who made hijra twice? How did that give the people who made hijra twice a feeling of upliftment and empowerment so, like, when we talk about how do we raise our daughters and our sons, we raise them on the sunnah, obviously, but we also do that in the lens of what it meant to be a female companion. Because, like, for example, there's this book called, called, which is like the liberation of women in the time of the prophet of the message, sallallahu alayhi It is so powerful because he, this author started, this scholar started by just wanting to do a seerah and then as he got through it, he, rec- he realized that like this, it's volumes, it's six volumes long. That's incredible. He realized that there are so many narrations of women. And like, there's nothing in this, like that we have easy access to in this viewpoint of who were the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, even though we do have so many scholars who have written about this over time. And we have like Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, Ibn Hajar, Ibn Hazm, they were all taught by women. Like the men we quote, we're taught by women. woman. we're taught by women. woman. Like the point is when we raise our daughters to know Islamic history, to know the companions, I hear from a lot of women who are raised saying that, you know, their role is to become a wife and a mother. And that is beautiful. Of course, you know, being a wife and a mother is so wonderful when you feel supported in that space, when you have the support and you want to be there. It is a beautiful, healing, empowering place. But when we look at Asma, the daughter of Abu Bakr, عنهما, we know her as the daughter who carried provision to Abu Bakr and the Prophet them when they were making hijrah. What we don't talk about is the fact that she was in her third trimester of pregnancy. Like, why aren't we addressing the fact that in the third trimester of pregnancy, she is walking in the desert carrying provision. She's known as having the two belts because she ripped she ripped her own clothing so that she could create this. And like, why aren't we talking about women's roles in that lens? Why aren't we raising our daughters with that lens? That yes, like you have a role to serve God. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us we were created only to worship him. Worship comes in the form of being the most amazing wife, being the most amazing mother. And it also comes as not. And why don't we nuance those conversations when we raise our daughters? So that, and our sons, so that inshallah, we have men and women who are ready to take on the responsibilities of supporting one another as allies, as the Quran specifically says in Surah Tawbah, that men and women are allies to one another. That is the type of reflection we should see in our communities.
1: That was so beautifully said. You know, a lot of times, yeah, we do only see our faith in the lens of like just upholding, uplifting women who are married, who have created families. And then everybody outside of that is feels less than. And then it's almost like we hold, now we start to hold this resentment towards our faith. We start to distance ourselves from our faith because we're being taught incorrectly. We're not being told these stories. It's so sad and unfortunate that I don't know stories of the female companions. I didn't even know they honestly existed until I came across her page. Not to put that weight and responsibility on you, but you've just enlightened me so much um, through everything that you've taught. And I was like, I can't believe at my age, at this point in my life, where I thought I knew my faith and I'm very close to my faith. And I love, I love being a the I try my hardest to do my best in whatever capacity but it's like I didn't even know female companions existed how beautiful would it have been for me to be raised and I don't want to put this pressure on my parents because you know they went through the same thing they probably they weren't raised with this knowledge either so it's not up to my parents I guess it's just as a community as a whole how can we do better how can we be better how can we as an ummah do better it's like I wish when I was younger I was raised with these stories of the female companions it would have just completely transformed I think my life the way I even am as a person my confidence A lot of us lack self-esteem. We really do. And sometimes it's rooted in our faith and not because of our faith, but it's the way we were taught. Alhamdulillah, like I'm just so, so grateful to be born a Muslim, to be, to have, to follow a faith that does empower women. Honestly, that's just the most beautiful gift that one can have so what do you have to say in regards to just female companions how can we learn more about them what resources are there and I really want to talk about your story if you're okay with that because I know it's a little bit emotional is when you laughed at somebody's joke I think it was a classmate's joke and you thought you were on Good muslim just for laughing at a joke because we thought that was just the wrong thing to do can we talk about it because a lot of times in our lives we do feel like we're like treading this fine line of being too western and not and forgetting our faith and can I laugh can I be confident can i do we don't know like like what is permissible in Islam and what is not.
0: Unfortunately, we've taught women modesty in this very warped lens where it's like afraid of ourselves, we're afraid of our personalities. We are taught that like everything we do is immodest. We have this obsession with modesty in our community. And instead of focusing on building a relationship with Allah and what are God's names? How is he Al the source of love? How is he as salam, the source of peace? How is he the one who is watching and caring for you how is he the just instead of focusing on who allah is instead of focusing on our relationship with the Prophet muhammad peace be upon him. even growing up like when i would hear companions i wanted to be like khalid ibn walid like in the battle like that's my personality like yes on the front lines like that's what i want to do bilal anhu, like subhanallah the way that he would stand and give the adhan. And I'm not, this is not a fiqh discussion on women giving the adhan. I do not hold the opinion in the (laughs) bathroom. Disclaimer. Um, Yeah, reciting Quran in public is very different from giving the adhan for the masjid. That is not okay. But the point, and that we can talk about why in a different discussion. Mm -hmm. But the point is like, these are the people I felt like I connected with. And then when I would hear lectures about women, it was only to talk about Aisha r.a. as a mother, excuse me, as a wife, Khadija radiallahu anha, yes, she was a businesswoman. Let's talk about Islam giving Muslim women rights because Khadija radiallahu anha was a businesswoman and Islam gave rights before Europe gave rights and now we don't even give the most basic rights in our own masjid. So it's like, we'll tokenize Khadija radiallahu anha as a businesswoman, but if a woman wants to work, it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that that yeah. was Khadija radiallahu and And unfortunately, again, that's cultural, that's not religious and that's not the norm in many Muslim communities. I don't want to make that feel like, you know, that's the reality, but... I will say that I am approached by women who are victims of domestic violence in their marriages. Trigger warning for what I'm about to say. They have been slapped. They have been choked. When they go to imams explaining what happens, more than one woman has told me, they have been told to be go home, be patient, pray harder, try harder, maybe try to seduce him in a different way. These are so belittling. They're so disgusting. And when I tell them that they should have every single right to know that they can leave, this is against our religion. Did God create you just to punish you because of your gender? The Quran talks about marriage being a place of mawadda and rahma, of love and mercy, that you are supposed to find tranquility in one another. To go to a person in religious leadership, To have the courage to speak up for yourself and your children. And then to be told to just go back. When I've told women who have approached me that they have a right to leave, they have told me I'm the only person who has told them this before. When someone tells me, when you tell me that you're the first person I've heard talk about companions who are women, I'm humbled, but it shatters me. Like, why? Why? When I grew up, the male companions were the people I wanted to be like. When I heard about the female companions, it was to talk about Fatima radhiyallahu anha as a daughter, Aisha radhiyallahu anha as a wife, and Khadija radhiyallahu anha as a businesswoman, wife, mother. That was it. Like Aisha radhiyallahu anha and her, you know, modesty with the way that she covered. That's it. And these women have those qualities. Yes, let us celebrate those qualities as we already do. But to obsess over those qualities without balancing it out with the fact that Um Atiyah physically defended the Prophet ﷺ in Uhud. That Asma radiallahu anha, she fought as well as more than 30 female companions in different battles. The fact that Um Haram asked the Prophet ﷺ to pray for her, to join a battle in the future that he predicted, that he prophesied would happen. And it did happen after he passed away. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And she asked him to pray that she will be with those people who go on that battle. The Prophet didn't tell her, you know, it would be better if you just stayed at home. It will be better if you prayed that you could get the reward without participating. He prayed. He accepted her prayer and she joined that delegation that went on that battle and she passed away. In that process, may Allah accept her as a martyr. When we think about the women who were our foremothers, when we talk about them in this lens, we heal women. We don't make it about this is your identity because you're a quote unquote Western liberal feminist, quote unquote. That phrase dismisses everything because in our community, those words are so loaded. We don't use them in ways that people mean them outside of Muslim spaces. We use them to mean you are so influenced by your cultural reality around you that you're willing to change your religion. When in reality, when we take the opinions that we talk about, that I talk about, I am literally quoting someone like Imam al-Bujairimi. Like, I'm quoting people who existed. 700, 800, 900 years ago, a 1,000 years ago, men who existed, who were taught by women, who had women as their students. And then the reaction is the usul. Your usul to just dismiss women's pain by saying you're a feminist and that's why you're impacted by these thoughts is a reflection of your ignorance of the reality of hundreds of, of years, of centuries of male scholarship who were taught by women The opinions that we're talking about, allowing our community spaces to have women's voices, not just on women's topics, which is at least a step forward, but also just present because this is our norm allows our daughters who are growing up in a, in a society where women have access to everything, but they don't even know how to access a scholar. Sheikha al Permal, she founded the Majlis. She mentioned to me once, this is like at least 10 years ago, may Allah bless her because she put this idea in my head that I just keep thinking about. Like, why don't we have women who are female resident scholars as part of every masjid? You can have the imam who leads prayers, but an imam, as important as his role is, it doesn't mean he has the most knowledge. It just means he leads prayers. Anyone with Quran can lead prayers. We can have, mashallah, we can have the Imam who can lead. He can give classes. He can be a great, incredible scholar. We can also hire a resident woman who is a teacher, who is a scholar, who teaches classes, who is accessible. If we all grew up going to a masjid where men and women were religious leaders, the way that we look at these issues would be so different. And also, I want to clarify, many times women are the one who who pass on very traumatic ideas. And that was my experience. Alhamdulillah, my parents were so supportive of me as a woman. They constantly were like, you need to be in spaces of scholarship because we need women in scholarship. I got so excited to study Islam. I found, you know, may Allah bless the random sisters who I approached in the masjid. They hadn't studied Islam. They took a few classes here and there, read Islam Q&A. They practiced Islam culturally. Their views were very specific about a woman's role. This is where I learned that all of the things I had been involved with in the past are absolutely not permissible, that it's best for me. You know, like you mentioned, I had a male classmate who made a joke. I laughed for like three seconds. I spent the next very long time begging of Allah's forgiveness. I missed class. I stopped researching. I spent years repenting for that moment. Like that came from... OCD like spiritual OCD that was ingrained in me by women and may Allah bless them I don't blame them because that's what they understood as the best form of worship but the problem is if they're the only people you're exposed to and then your life becomes you make wudu seven times before you can pray and then you make up maghrib six times because you don't know if you had enough concentration that's spiritual OCD if you can't leave your house because you're not sure if you're dressed modestly enough, when you're practically wearing naqab, that's spiritual OCD. Like, we need to address the fact that people have trauma, that we come to our religious spaces seeking healing, and we need men and women who are people of knowledge, who are trained to say, I'm not a therapist. But we have Muslim therapists you can go to, because half the questions that I receive are not about whether or not their salah was valid or a question, it's they're experiencing some sort of trauma and they think that God is not listening to them because their answers are not, their prayers are not answered. When in reality, you just need to talk to a therapist, process whatever it is you're going through. This isn't about God punishing you. This is about you just needing help professionally. And I think being able to create spaces where we have women who are present, who are trained to simply be able to direct people, men and women, direct people to professional services that we have as a part of our community, inshallah, we will begin to see so much healing in our community. Instead of couching the conversation as this is a punishment from God and that's why you're going through this, we can couch it in. This is an opportunity for you to grow as an individual and heal, whether because you've been wronged or you've done wrong. And inshallah, in that process, you will come out as a more whole believer. And inshallah, the more that we heal one another, we will find our communities healing.
1: That was so insightful and that was so helpful because a lot of us women, you know, for me, I've said this before, I behave in the way and what I identify as. And first and foremost, I identify myself as a Muslim woman before anything, before being Palestinian, before whatever. I'm a Muslim woman. So a lot of my decisions have been based upon being Muslim. And it's so difficult sometimes when you're trying to make these decisions and you're not, you don't know if you're practicing your faith in the correct manner or not. When I had opened up my inbox to women wanting to ask you questions, I was like, what question do you have for the Miriam? And I can't thank you enough for even just being a guest on this podcast and just expressing all this. It's, It's very, very helpful. Majority of the women were like, I don't know if I'm living my life correctly. Imagine being debilitated by that thought every single day in the smallest of actions that you're doing every single day. But majority of them are also in marriages that they don't know that if they're living life the right way, because they're like, we're living in the West, but we're practicing Muslims. And sometimes I feel like I'm being shunned for being independent, but I am in a marriage. I do want to do right by my spouse, but I also want to make sure that I'm doing right by myself as well and giving myself agency over who I am and and how I want to be and what I want to do. And sometimes, yeah, it's tricky because sometimes these hadiths, these lectures are being given from the perspective of a male lens. And I'm not saying all male scholars or imams are incorrect, but sometimes, yeah, it could be seen from their perspective. And there is some language that could be used that's just like makes us feel a little bit belittled when some people say women are emotional and that's how they, you know, that's how they describe us. But what I'm getting at is a lot of women want to know what relevant sources to find in, in regards to how to live their life as a practicing Muslim, but also having agency over their body and doing right. Because a lot of times we're just told the wrong things or we're being culturally raised with these norms that do not align with our faith whatsoever. Again, to no one's fault, it's not. to right. my parents' fault. And I, I don't want to keep continuously to put even that disclaimer out there. I mean, our parents did our, the best that they could, but it's like, I don't want to pass this misknowledge down To the next generation, the next generation after that. How can we heal? And oftentimes, it's like, yeah, we do look at a woman as her physical appearance. And I don't want to get into the hijab, but there's so many discussions out there about hijab, and there, and like you said, there's just so much obsession. When do we get to the point where we work on our spiritual core? What sources do we have to work on ourselves on the inside and out, knowing that I am following my faith in the correct manner and not through the cultural lens of our society?
0: Yes. So I just want to, you know, do make a correction of a word that I think is really important to use intentionally. So it's not that woman who follows certain opinions are wrong. It's that they're following a difference of opinion. And I think when you look at that, it's like, am I living my, my life wrong in the religious perspective if I choose a particular opinion? That is so contextual. It just depends on your situation, your relationship, what your goals are like, you know, that's so different for each person. But I just want to make sure that we're not negating the fact that, you know, there are opinions that have specific places for women to be, and that's acceptable. There are also other opinions that have them in other places, and that is also acceptable. And what's important for us is that when we teach our community, we are not only teaching this as this is the only opinion that's acceptable. It's there are differences of opinion. And alhamdulillah for that, because you can now choose to see how you can best worship God. Is that going to come through you being a full-time Mother, is that going to come through you being a full-time worker? Is that going to come through you being a full-time caretaker for your parents? Whatever your reality, Allah has facilitated so many doors for you to feel close to Him through what your priorities are. How can we find our you know, relationship with Him bolstered and feel like we are on solid footing in the decisions that we make? There are three texts that I really recommend in English. The first one is called Reflecting on the Names of Allah. Reflecting on the Names of Allah. It is by... I've heard that one. Um, yes, it is by Jinan Youssef. She is actually an incredible friend of mine. Um, child of it is so beautiful. It talks about who Allah is, how the names of Allah apply to your particular circumstance. She talks about how does this name of God apply to your life? What does this mean in these types of situations? It's very real. And if you just take a name of Allah a week, Read one name. It's going to take you like three minutes. That week, call to Allah by that name. When you read about who al-wali is, who is this ally, this guardian, you pray to him by that name through that week. The next week, take another one, pray to him by that name. Knowing who he is allows us to recognize that when we're being wronged, this isn't coming from religion. Something is happening That isn't something that is coming from Islam. I don't need to put up with this because Islam is asking me to deal and experience and be okay with being taken advantage of just because of my gender. No, that's not who Al-Adl is.
1: And this also happens in regards to divorced women. A lot of women don't know how to even just navigate life after being divorced within our community, within our society. They carry this burden as well, even after leaving their abuser or just even just a, a marriage that they just didn't want to be a part of anymore.
0: And when you know that, you know, when you know who is with you in that process, because of course, it matters what people say, of course, it's going to impact you to say that I don't care what people say is unrealistic, we are going to hear what people say, and it will impact us at times. And that's okay. But is that going to be what pushes us to make future decisions? That's the point. Like, I'm not going to allow cultural misunderstandings, look at the companions of the prophet, peace be upon him. Companions of the prophet's got divorced. They got remarried. They didn't get married. They got remarried. They got divorced and never got married again. I mean, it was, <laughs> this is life, right? Like this is human. This is being human. Relationships are going to fluctuate. But like when you know who God is, no matter what your relationship status is, you always have a relationship with God. The way that people have expectations of you or what they think because of their misunderstanding of you isn't as intense. So the first one is just knowing who Allah is. The second book that I recommend is a book on the Seerah. It's called Muhammad Manan, uh, Prophet, peace be upon him, by Adil Salahi. It's like over 800 pages. But the book is so beautiful because you feel like you're with the Prophet, peace be upon him. You feel like you're walking with him. You feel like you're living with him. And the first few chapters are a little more dry. But the more you get into it, the more you feel like this is a Prophet of mercy. This is the Prophet who was sent to perfect character, and this is a prophet, peace be upon him, who I want to be like, and is healing for me. So when you hear a narration that is used, that is abused, misused, misapplied from the prophet, peace be upon him, to unfortunately many times hurt women, then you look at that and you're like, this is not the prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, that I know, and maybe the context in which this hadith is being misapplied is the problem, not the hadith itself. And then I can look at what does this hadith actually mean? So differentiating who he was with the actions, peace be upon him, of people who use his name to unfortunately very you know, often push women into specific positions. And sometimes those are even people of knowledge. Sometimes those are even scholars. But we also have to recognize like, when you hear the words of a scholar, and it really hurts you, look at that in a context. Because, for example, I have a paper coming out, inshallah, addressing hadith that is unfortunately misunderstood and at times, unfortunately, can be used to justify marital rape. And that hadith is so healing. It actually gives women so much agency. But when you look at it without context, and when you look at it without recognizing the comprehensive understanding of the narration a person could simply misuse it and 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 justify their abuse of it and so like you're going to even have people who are scholars who maybe their scholarship is in a different area like just because a person is a scholar of tafsir does not mean they're a scholar of shafi'i fiqh you know a scholar of maliki fiqh does not make them a scholar of a different usul. So, like, we have to recognize that just because a person of knowledge says something doesn't mean that they're speaking out of their, you know, depth of understanding of all of Islam. That might not be an area that they are uh, a scholar of. And in that case, we shouldn't speak (laughs) on issues we don't have knowledge of. But when, when you hear scholars who make statements like that, like, okay, compare that to the Quran and the Sunnah and the accumulation of scholars throughout history. Does that statement hold weight? Or is that a, an opinion that maybe like three people hold versus hundreds of scholars who understood it in a certain way? So knowing who the Prophet ﷺ was helps us navigate it, you know, the, the the challenges that we feel to our faith when we come across narrations that just don't make sense to us at times. We don't have to say this narration doesn't exist. We can say, how can I understand what the context actually was? Knowing who the Prophet ﷺ was as someone who consistently validated listened to, and always made space for women's voices and access. And then the third thing is the book al muhaddithat that was written by a scholar who, mashallah, he just released a compilation of, I believe it's over 9,000 female Hadith scholars in history. And the book is in English. It's Al-Muhadithat that is the introduction to that index. It's maybe like 300, 400-page book, but it talks about companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and in the centuries that came, women who were scholars, who were Hadith scholars, who taught, and he makes a statement by Dr. Sheikh Muhammad Akram Nadawi. He makes a statement, may Allah protect him and bless him, that there was no scholar who was a woman who had a family and had responsibilities to her husband and her children. Who, if she was able to balance those responsibilities with teaching, that she would never stop teaching. We have Sheikha Fatima that he mentions there are a number of Sheikha Fatimas in his book, but one of them who was raised, I believe she was born in China. She was raised by her father who was a scholar to become a scholar. And then she married a scholar. And this this the man she married, Alhamdulillah, his recognition of her importance, he supported her work. Men and women from around the world would travel just to hear her narrations. So this is one example of literally thousands. And when we see that that's part of our history, then we say we don't make statements like where are the female scholars or why don't we have female scholars or, you know, we need more female scholars. Like, yes, we do. Where we are right now is not our norm in Islamic history. We need to go back to our norm, which is female scholarship being part of our being just normal, not just where are they? It's they're here. They're everywhere. We are here. We have been here. We are not going anywhere. And inshallah, our communities can help create spaces for women's voices to be amplified. Inshallah, Ya Rab.
1: Honestly, this was such a powerful conversation. And and I think knowledge, applied knowledge is super powerful. You can hold this knowledge within you, but applying it is just a whole different story. And I think it's beautiful. And Inshallah, we can continue applying the knowledge that we, that we grasp. And I think it is important for us to also do our own due diligence and go out there and find these books and read these texts. And I can't thank you enough for recommending this because I think majority of the women that reached out to me, they just want relevant sources. They just want to know where they can find the stories of female companions and stories of women, female scholars. I think it's incredible. And and yeah, sometimes it's like, yeah, you finally feel seen within your own community. And when you feel seen, you feel more validated. You have a lot of your unanswered questions answered now. And I think that's something that we definitely should work on as a community. And we are. And I, I you know, people like you and all the other women that you've also mentioned, like such as Dr. Tamada Gray, like you guys are incredible. And we can't thank you enough for, for doing this and for spearheading this and for talking about these conversations. And it's difficult. It's honestly difficult conversations to have. It's one thing. To have a voice, but to also amplify your voice and allow your voice to be heard and to reach the masses, inshallah. But I can't thank you enough. I've said this so many times, but honestly, I'm truly indebted to you and your knowledge and just what you've shared with me and just this conversation. And I know you're just such a very humble person, but truly, you you honestly have made a positive impact on so many women. Is there anything else you just want to leave off with? Any piece of advice for any woman that is seeking knowledge or just sometimes feels a little alone or unsure if she's making the right choices in the relationship? context. And sometimes we do as women feel like a burden, and we're truly not. And our, our faith says otherwise, completely otherwise. So if there's anything else you want to leave off with?
0: Yes, I want to leave you with resources. So I mentioned some institutes that you can enroll in and be, be become students with. This is so important. You're going to read books, and that's wonderful, but you need consistent mentorship, from people who are invested in you. I mentioned a few institutes earlier, and there are names like Ustada Shazia Ahmed, Ustada Amina Darwish, we have Ustada Keltun Karani, Ustada Leila Graham. There are so many women who have written children's books like Sheikha Ali Adada, Sheikha Suzanne Darani. We have Ustada Hassai Mujaddidi. like so many women who are doing this type of work who are accessible on social media. And... I didn't even list like, oh my God, forgive me everyone for not thinking of everyone's names. We're going to create a
1: list inshallah that I can share with them. I think because honestly, it's a lot to put you on the spot right now and make you share all these sources because I know you're truly connected with all these incredible women. And I've had the pleasure of sitting with Husayi too. And she, mashallah, such a beautiful conversation. Yeah. There
0: are so many women. And that's why I I just want to tell you that I'm tripping over my mouth trying to give you resources because Dr. Rania Awad, for example, like women who are scholars and they're not just scholars in Islamic In the realm of Islamic sciences, yes, they are, but they also are involved in other fields as well. And they merge their Islamic understanding with our daily lives. Knowing that you have this like, you know, posse of women who are there for you, who are there to support you, even if it's like their existence, know that you are not alone and that subhanAllah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he knew that he created you the way he created you for a reason. You are a part of this ummah because he chose to make you a part of this ummah. Because of what? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Hu He chose you. Why did he choose you? Because he knows that there's something inside of you that this ummah can benefit from. and Aslam did not come to new our personalities. It came to enhance the people that we are to become better versions of ourselves as we reached for Allah Subh'anaHu Wa So know that you have worth, you are worthy, your voice is needed. And inshallah, through the mentorship and through the therapy support, you will find who you are and what your role is. Inshallah, Ya
1: Rab. And people can find you on social media, on Instagram, the Miriam Amir. Um, I'm going to link everything. And you said you also have videos on YouTube as well, too.
0: Yes. So if you look up my name, M-A-R-Y-A-M-A-M-I-R, I I have videos on YouTube lectures. I just joined TikTok, the Miriam Amir, and also on Instagram and also on Facebook. And you can message me, inshallah, and I would be so honored to um, support you through your process, inshallah.
1: Thank you so much, Stehada. Honestly, it's just been such an honor to have you on here. It's just, it's such a beautiful conversation and I absolutely love faith-based conversations and empowering conversations like this. I can literally go on for hours and hours, but I can't thank you enough. I can't wait for people to listen to this episode. I know for a fact they'll benefit inshallah they do benefit from this and inshallah we continue to witness your your success your growth and inshallah you can continue to share your knowledge with us inshallah we can only grow as a community honestly i just i'm very optimistic i, I think we're moving in the right direction it's just we need a little bit of guidance a little bit more push and just a little bit more solidarity with one another and just being there for one another honestly i think that's the most important thing but thank you thank you so much miriam Oh,
0: thank you it's been such an honor come.